This sermon is brought to you by Christ Church South Philadelphia, a church that is committed to living out the gospel in their neighborhood and from there impacting the world. For more information about our church or to support our mission, you can go to www.ChristChurchSouthPhilly.org. Well, if you have your Bibles with you, please turn in them to the book of 1 Peter chapter 3. 1 Peter chapter 3. If you do not have a Bible, there's actually some on the back table. Uh, you can go ahead and grab on your way out. We'd love for you to take that as a gift from us to you today. We are in a series in this ancient letter, uh, which is written by the Apostle Peter, one of Jesus' first followers, first disciples. Um, but we believe this has been inspired by God. That's what Jesus said, that the Bible is not just people's words, it is God's word. And so to read it is to hear God address us. As you make your way to 1 Peter chapter 3, uh, I want to ask you to think about this question as we get ready to read God's word to us. Here's the question. What is your calling in life? Where's your calling in life? My first job as a pastor was I was in charge of uh, a church's ministry to college students. Um, and I loved it. I love being around college students. They are filled with so much energy and drive and big dreams and big hopes and they love to have long conversations uh, which I usually loved uh, but not always because sometimes I was getting older and I was getting tired. Uh, one of those nights every every week my wife and I would have a group of about 30 or 40 college students into our home. Uh, this is back when we lived in New Jersey and we could fit, fit 30 or 40 people into our homes. Um, and so we'd have this group over and, and the meeting would officially end at 10 but sometimes it would definitely stretch uh, beyond that. And so this one night, it was stretching beyond that, and it was going past 11, and it was really going, going to about 12. And uh, around that time, people started leaving and getting together, and, you know, everyone's giving hugs goodbye because college students are huggers. And, um, and, and so I don't usually like physical touch, but I'll, I'll get into that. And so anyway, so we're all hugging each other goodbye. They're going through the door, and the last person's about to leave, and he just turns around on my porch Again, another thing that I used to have in, in, in the suburbs. And says, um, says, you know, Jeff, i got one more question. How do I know what my calling is in life? And I'm like, that's the question you ask as you're walking out the door? Like, I don't know what your calling is in life, but I know that my bed is calling my name. So see you later, you know. Um, I didn't say that because, you know, as a pastor, you're not allowed to say those things. And so it was a, it was a genuine question. And so I wanted to take some time helping him think through that. And actually, the passage that we're about to read today is one of the passages that I took him to, to help us think about what is our calling in life. The theme of 1 Peter uh, is that for the disciples of Jesus, his followers, earth is not our true home. We're only passing through here until we get to be with him forever in heaven. And so we are exiles here, Peter starts this letter by saying. Uh, but being exiles here does not mean that we're meant to be checked out of here. God has important things for us to do in this life, right here and right now. We are passing through, but we're not meant to pass by. And so today we're going to see some of the things that God has called us to as we are followers of Jesus. We're going to read 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 8 through 12. May we hear God address us with these words. Finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. 
Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless. For to this you are called, you may obtain a blessing. For whoever desires to love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Jabari has me now in a word of prayer. The God bless the reading and now the preaching of his word. God, we thank you that you inspired your servant Peter to write these words to these churches so many years ago. Lord, you have preserved them throughout the ages for this church, for Christ church, for today. Lord, I recognize that not everyone here might be a believer in you. Everyone here might not be a follower of you. But Lord, I pray that wherever we are in our faith journey, that today we hear ourselves being addressed by you. That you'd meet us where we are today. But that you would love us too much to leave us as we are. That you'd want to help us to grow more and more into the people that you have created us to be. And so I pray, Lord God, that as we go through this sermon, that we would allow your words in this text to edify us, to build us up. Would you allow them to glorify you, that you would be lifted up in our hearts? Would you, Lord, make them something that would horrify Satan, the great enemy of our souls? Would you send him on the run today through the preaching of your good word? We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. Our passage today starts with the word, finally. Not because Peter is getting ready to close the end of this letter, but because he's really bringing this section of the letter that he's been in to a close. Back in chapter 2, verse 12, we saw that, that Peter was starting a very specific section of the letter as he said that followers of Jesus are meant to live honorable lives as a way to bear witness to the world that we are Jesus' disciples. And then Peter goes on to direct uh, to specific groups and to specific situations how we are to live out honorable lives. And so he talks about what looks like to live as honorable citizens and how we relate to our civil authorities. He's talked about how we are to live as honorable workers, as those who relate to our work authorities, our bosses. He's talked about how we are to relate honorably in marriage to one another. And here he is wrapping up this section by saying, here's what you all need to do as a, in order to be a witness to the world about Jesus. And he starts in verse 8, talking about characteristics that should mark our Christian communities, our churches, the gathering of disciples of Jesus Christ. And then he goes on in verse 9 to 12 to talk about how to treat people who wrong you, how we are to bless them. And he says, to this you are called. And so here's how the logic of these verses fits together. Peter talks about community, and then he talks about calling. Because the only way to fulfill the calling he talks about is by being the community that he talks about. Or to say it this way, here's the big idea of the text. It takes a Christ-centered community to fulfill a Christ-centered calling. It takes a Christ-centered community to fulfill a Christ-centered calling. This is why I told the college student that day, whether you are a doctor or truck driver or accountant or musician or a student or a stay-at-home parent, Whatever you find yourself doing, there is a clear calling God has given you as you do it. 
But in order to live out this Christ-centered calling that every Christian has, we need to be part of the Christ-centered community that every Christian needs. So this morning, I want to look at this calling, and then I want to see the kind of community we need in order to fulfill this calling. And so I've, I've got two points. A Christ-centered calling described, and a Christ-centered community prescribed. A Christ-centered calling described, and a Christ-centered community prescribed. I'm entitled this morning's sermon, A Community, A Calling for the Community, and A Community for the Calling. And I do want to say, if you're here and you're not a follower of Jesus, and you're like, what's this calling and community? What's this all about? Uh, I hope that you find this sermon helpful to really hear more about what it means to be a follower of Jesus, what Christianity is all about. And I hope you find that helpful to consider as you think what God might be calling you to. And so let's read, uh, start, start this morning, point one, a Christ-centered calling described. Our calling that we are given in verse 9 first starts with what we are not to do. He says, do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling. Now this assumes that people are going to do us wrong sometimes. That there are going to be people in our lives who do evil against us. There are going to be people in our lives who revile us, which means to deeply dislike us. And in the Greco-Roman culture in which this letter was written, that was a shame and honor culture. And so what mattered most in that culture was your reputation. And so if someone wronged you, it would be a shame to you. It would be seen as a sign of weakness if you didn't respond in kind. And so think about how in Europe, uh, or in the early days of America, uh, people used to duel each other, right? They felt like their honor had been offended. They would, they would retaliate by, let's go shoot each other, throw knives or fight, whatever it is you know, they did in the duel. Let's do this because I have to defend my honor. Now, I don't think that we duel nowadays, at least I certainly hope we don't, uh, but I think there can still be that inbuilt desire in us to want to retaliate against others when they do wrongs to us. You did something wrong to me, and so now I want to do something wrong back to you. It might not be violent. It might not even be something that we outwardly express. It could just be a removal of our affection. It could just be a cold shoulder turned towards someone and clear vibes sent out. I'll be honest, that could be my tendency. That can be my tendency. Uh, there was a friend several years ago who really wronged me in a pretty significant way. Uh, we used to be in the same church together. It's not this church, but a previous church I was a part of. And we were super close. Uh, but he betrayed my trust in some significant and honestly very, very hurtful ways. And so we went our separate ways and, you know, kind of out of sight, out of mind. But about a year later, we were at a large event and I saw him across the room and our eyes locked. And I purposely, to my shame, made a choice to turn my back and go the opposite way. And then even further, the group that I was with saw my behavior, saw what was going on, and they said, hey, what's wrong? What's going on? And even further, to my shame, uh, I decided to gossip, to speak poorly about him to the group of people I was with. My justification was, well, he did me wrong. So now I'm going to do him wrong. What this passage is telling us is that's not what followers of Jesus are supposed to do. That is not how we are supposed 
to act. We are not those who repay evil for evil. We are not those who respond to reviling with reviling. But instead, what are we to do? It's not just what we are not to do, but verse 9 gives us an active calling. It says, but instead, bless. We're called to bless. What does it mean, does it mean to bless? Well, Peter goes on to quote what it means from bless by the Bible. And he quotes from Psalm chapter 34, which is what is written in verses 10 through 11. He says, whoever desires to love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. Seeking peace is more than just not being hostile with someone. Uh, it, the word of the peace uh, in the Bible actually comes from the, the rich Jewish idea of shalom. Shalom is, is a holistic wellness. And so what Peter is saying here is that to bless someone is to be someone who seeks others' peace, who seeks to make their life thrive, who seeks to do good to them, who seeks to be a benefit to them. That's what we're called to. It's not only what we're not supposed to do, I'm not supposed to respond the way I've been treated. Not only am I not supposed to respond, I'm actually supposed to actively bless. That's what followers of Jesus are called to do. And it's not by chance that the Holy Spirit inspired Peter to quote Psalm 34 here. See, Psalm 34 was written by the Israelite king, David. If you know anything about the story of David, you know that he was someone who knew what it was like to be done dirty. Um, David's story does not start out with him being a king. His story starts out with the current king, a man named Saul. Uh, king Saul knows that, that God wants David to be king after him. So God wasn't going to take Saul out. He was just going to say, that, hey, Saul, when you die, your kingship dies with you. I'm going to pass the kingdom over to David. And instead of Saul being content with doing what God had called him to do, he becomes jealous of what God had given David to do. And so he decides to respond to the word of God by trying to kill David. How often we hear God say things and we want to do the exact opposite. And so that's what happens. David has to live the majority of his life fleeing for his life because he is in fear of his life. The king of the nation, his nation, is out for blood. And so David lives with his loyal followers in caves. One night, we read in, second, in 1 Samuel chapter 24, as Saul is leading an army to hunt down and kill David, uh, the, the, the army comes into camp at night and Saul has to relieve himself. And so he goes to find a cave in which to do so in privacy. The cave he goes into is a cave where David is hiding with his men. And Saul goes into it alone. He doesn't see David there. And David's men are like, this is it. This is our opportunity to strike our enemy down. He's literally being caught with his pants off. This is our opportunity to take him out. But David responds and says, 1 Samuel chapter 24, Forbid it that I should hurt my Lord. Not only does he say he's not going to hurt Saul, he speaks about Saul in a very respectful way. And then in the next morning, when Saul goes back out to his troops and wakes up in the morning, David comes out of that cave. And he says, Saul, I was in that cave last night. And I could have killed you. 
But here's what I want to do instead. He actually bows down before Saul and says, I'm here to serve you. I'm here to honor you. He blesses him. He blesses him. Someone who is trying to kill him. David does not respond in kind, but blesses him. That's the man who wrote Psalm 34 that Peter is quoting here. See, Saul's actions against David did not change what David knew God wanted from him. And so Saul could try to kill David, but David was going to still bless Saul. And this is how God wants us to live. He wants us to live to bless others, even those who do us wrong, to bless them, to seek their good, their well-being. Because how we treat others is not based upon how they treat us. How we treat others is based upon who we are. Why does God want us to be these types of people? Why does God want us to live this way? Why does He say, to this you have been called? Because we are followers of Jesus. And what did Jesus do for us? When Jesus was on the cross, what did He do as He was suffering for our wrongs? What did He do as He was experiencing our evil? He said, Father, forgive them. Jesus did not repay the evil done against Him with evil, but instead He repaid it with blessing. I love how Pastor Shane Shattuck says it when he says, we are never being more like Jesus than when we bless those who harm us. Friend, you are never being more like Jesus than when you bless someone who is harming you. And that's really what's behind the conditional clause here in verse 9. It says, Bless, for to this you were called, that you may obtain a blessing. Now at first glance, this might look like works-based salvation. If you want to be blessed by God, you need to bless others. But the word for obtain here is actually the same word as inherit. If you know anything about inheritances, inheritances are not something that you earn. Inheritances are something that you receive. So this is not saying bless others so that God will bless you, but rather bless others because you have received God's blessing. You bless because you've been blessed. We've been blessed by salvation in Jesus. I love how Plaster Blind Rulitz puts it when he says, this is not talk about how to about how to get into God's good graces, but how to show that God's good graces have gotten into you. See, when we know how, how richly blessed we have been by God in Jesus, when we know deep in our souls the richness of His love and forgiveness and mercy and goodness, His blessings that we have received as our spiritual inheritance in Christ, when we know that those things have been deposited into the bank account of our souls, that's how we can write a check of blessing to others and show love and give forgiveness and do good even to those who have wronged us because we have an abundance of blessing to give through what we've been given by Jesus. See, we have a Christ-centered calling to bless others as Jesus has blessed us. I read a story about a soldier in World War II who would read his Bible every night, and one night, one of his fellow soldiers just got really annoyed at that, and took his muddy boots and threw it at him, and turned his back and went to sleep. The next morning, that angry soldier who had thrown his boots woke up to find his muddy boots next to his bed, but they were muddy no longer. 
They had been cleaned and shined as if ready for a parade. That night when the Christian went to read his Bible, there were some other men who were with him that time. They wanted to hear about this Jesus who would create that kind of response. And many came to believe in Christ. So here's my question. Whose shoes is God asking you to shine? Whose shoes is God asking you to shine? Your boss who is unfair to you. Your teacher who is unkind to you. Your coworker who you know is speaking bad about you. Your family that loves to make fun of you and thinks the worst of you regularly. Our Christian calling is to bless, not some, we are to bless everybody. We can bless everybody, especially those who do us wrong. Now, I want to make a careful qualifier here. Um, this is obviously not saying that if you're in a dangerously abusive situation, you need to stay in it and take it. I talked about this last week as well. If someone is doing you harm, please get some help. Get some help and know that our pastoral team would want to come alongside you and support you in any way that we can. This is not talking about that. This is talking about how, in a general sense, we should seek to live our lives to do good to others, to seek their peace, to seek their wellness, to seek their shalom, no matter who they are or how they treat us. And as I think about that, I think that's pretty challenging. It's pretty challenging. This is, this is a hard calling to be given, which is why I think God inspired Peter to start with verse 8. See, the only way to fulfill this Christ-centered calling is by being part of a Christ-centered community. It takes a Christ-centered community to fill the Christ-centered calling. So let's look at point number two, a Christ-centered community prescribed. Like a do doctor prescribing medicine to strengthen their patient and help them get well, God prescribes Christian community for us, so that we might be strengthened to pursue the calling He has given us. Because Christian community is not just about having friends. It's not just about having a social group that you're part of. Christian community is about experiencing Jesus. Jesus said that the church, our local communities where we gather together as believers in Jesus, the local church is the body of Christ. He is the head, but we are meant to embody him to one another. And so we can't know Jesus without being actively engaged with his body. Any more than a person can say they know someone if all they experience is that person's head. We, we need to be meaningfully connected to Jesus' body through being actively engaged in the community of a local church. Because like water in a desert... The church is meant to be a community that we're part of, where our thirsty souls can be met and quenched with the refreshing waters of Christ. So that we can fill each other up with Jesus, so then we can then be sent back out into this world and spend ourselves for Him. But in order for us to be a Jesus-filling, spiritual, life-giving community, there are some characteristics that need to mark us. And so verse 8 actually lays out some things that Jesus says we are meant to do in order to embody him to one another. And we need to notice that as, as these things are laid out, before he lays out these five different things, he says, finally, all of you. This is not calling some of us. This is not calling those who are extroverted. This is not calling those who are in church leadership. This is calling each and every 
person. You see, we can only be the kind of community that God wants us to be if each person in the community takes responsibility to do that. The community is only as strong as his individual members. This is a calling for all of us. So we're going to go through these different characteristics. And as we do, don't be thinking about, man, I'd love, I'd love to experience more of that. I want you to be thinking about how can I contribute more to making that happen. Let's look at each of these things together. First, unity of mind. Because finally all of you have unity of mind. This is not uniformity. This does not mean that we think the same thing about everything. This is biblical unity, which biblical unity is all about having differences with one another, but we are unified together by one thing and one thing only, and that is Jesus Christ. Theologian Gordon Semwell describes the unity that's being talked about here as this. He says, it is a common faith and a shared ethic. See, we have a common faith in Jesus and a common ethic to want to follow the ways of Jesus. And the night before Jesus died, he prayed in John chapter 17 that we would be together as one. And he says, just as I and the Father are one. You see, as we experience unity with each other, we're experiencing something of the unity that exists within the Trinity of God himself. The Bible teaches there is one God in three persons. You heard me say it when we baptized Mike earlier. He is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. One God, one being, and yet three distinct persons. There is complete unity within distinction. This is what we are meant to embody to one another as a church. We are different, distinct people, and yet there's meant to be a unity that we come together with in our worship of God. Which is why Jesus says in Matthew chapter 5, verse 24, that if we're here worshiping Him, and we've got an issue with someone else here who's worshiping Him, we're actually supposed to stop our worship and go make that right. Because we can't expect to be okay with the head if we're not okay with His body. They are inextricably interconnected. And so we are called to unity. We are called to working stuff out. We are called to having Jesus be what matters most to us. Second, we are called to sympathy. Have unity of mind, have sympathy. Sympathy means to share in one another's feelings. I think about Romans chapter 12, verse 15, which says, Rejoice with those who rejoice. And weep with those who weep. If someone is happy, you might have had a terrible week. But don't go raining on their parade. No, let their joy become your joy. And don't be jealous of their joy. But be genuinely happy for God's goodness in their lives. And if someone's having a hard time, let their hard time become your hard time. I love the story of Jesus in John chapter 11 where he goes to raise his friend Lazarus from the dead. If you know that story, he shows up and Lazarus' sisters, Mary and Martha, come out to him and they are just weeping. They're, they're emotionally wrecked. They've lost this brother whom they deeply, deeply loved. Jesus doesn't meet their tears with callousness and say, get over it. Uh, he doesn't say, what's wrong with you? He doesn't say, be strong. No, it's actually the shortest verse in the Bible, but it says so, so much. Here's what Jesus did as he experienced their tears. John eleven thirty five, 35, Jesus wept. 
He knows he's going to raise Lazarus from the dead. He knows everything's going to work all out for their good. But he felt no need to tell them that in that moment. He just, he just entered into their pain. And he wept with them. And notice also what he doesn't do. He doesn't talk about his pain. I think sometimes when someone shares their hurt with us, we can feel compelled to want to share how, we, how we've been hurt too. That's not what Jesus does. And so, yes, I know you're sad that Lazarus died. Let me tell you how about I'm going to die. No, he doesn't make it about himself. He just, he just makes their feelings his feelings. And he enters into their sadness with them. He's attuned to what they're going through. Now, being attuned to someone's feelings also means respecting if they want to keep those feelings to themselves. Sometimes, sometimes you need to give people space. However, I've also found that sometimes when you give people space and don't ask how they're doing, they feel unseen and unheard. And so it can feel sometimes like a lose-lose. What am I supposed to do here? Um, but, but here's what I would suggest. Here's, here's a good way to be sympathetic. Let, let them take the lead. Show up and, and say to them, hey, listen, I'm not sure if you want to talk. Give them an out. But if you do want to talk, I want to know that I'm here for you and my heart is hurting for you. That way they don't have to draw the boundary. They don't have to say, hey, you know, you've already given them the out. If they don't want to talk, they don't have to talk. But they know that you're there. That They know that you're expressing sympathy for them. And listen, I know there are people in our church who have come to know Jesus because of the sympathy that they, they have experienced from people in this church. And I praise, I praise God for that. I also know there's people who have not stuck with our church because of the lack of sympathy they've experienced. They haven't had anyone reach out. They haven't had anyone follow up. And so this is why it takes all of us, not just some of us. So my question to you is, when was the last time you reached out to someone? When was the last time you dropped someone a text or maybe even wrote a note? I think we can actually still do that. The mail system, I last heard, still does work. Um, we are to embody the sympathy of Jesus to one another. We're to have unity of mind, sympathy. We are to have brotherly love. It's the name of our city, right? Philadelphia. Now, I don't think God wants us to get our cues on how to have brotherly love from our city, uh, especially in recent years. Uh, but what this is meant to be, how, how are we get our cues on what it means to have brotherly love? It, these cues are meant to come from him. You know, a big deal gets made of God's agape love. So if you know anything, there's three words in, in Greek that describe love. There's eros, which is romantic love. There's agape, which is this self-giving love. That's the love that's most used often to refer to God, which is great. But God also talks about his Philadelphia love, his, his brotherly love. You see, when we place our faith in Jesus, then we get adopted into God's family as his beloved children. And so God has family love for us. And so here's what God's family love for us is highlighting. It's highlighting commitment. Like, you can change your friends. You can't change your family. Right? You're committed. You're all in. Whether you like it or not sometimes. Uh, but for God, not only does he have affection for us, he wants to be all into us. He, he, is, he is committed to us. And that's how he wants us to experience our church community. Brotherly love, this, this family love, it's, 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 it's about having a lot more than a bunch of followers on social media. A, a bunch of people who can like your TikToks or your Instagram posts or whatever you're putting on there. It's, this is not friends online. This is not casual acquaintances. This is talking about people who are going to be pallbearers at your funeral. That's the kind of relationships that God wants us to be building as his community. 
Which is why actually doing what can happen a lot in, in the American church, hopping from church to church, or being here but always being in and out. I think the average church attendance right now is about one, once a month. That's considered like really good. That, that's not good for our souls. Because close relationships only come through time spent together regularly over the long haul. I think a good example of this is the sequoia tree. I'm not sure if you've ever seen a sequoia tree before. They're, they're magnificent. They, they're referred to as some of the largest and oldest living things on earth. And so a sequoia tree can grow some to over 250 feet. And they can live, there's, there's one that's about 1,800 years old right now. It's amazing. But what's really amazing about sequoia trees is how they're able to stay that long and grow that tall. Sequoia trees only grow in groves of other sequoia trees. Because these massive trees, they have roots that are only about four feet deep. And so the only way that they can stay up is by having their roots being interconnected with one another. A sequoia tree can't stand on its own. It can only stand by being connected with other sequoia trees. If you were to uproot a sequoia tree and go plant it somewhere else, it would topple over and die. It's only by being rooted together that it can grow so tall and that it can last so long. And this is what God says we need in the local church. We need rooted relationships where we can experience the love of commitment, God's love of commitment for us. And that doesn't just happen by showing up on a Sunday morning. That happens by building our lives together Monday through Saturday. So my encouragement to you is be intentional. Don't wait to people to reach out to you. Reach out to them. Build relationships with others. This fall, we're actually looking to revamp our small groups and really make each one into a place where we can build deep and meaningful community with one another. Because God calls us to be a family with one another. Church is not just a place we go. It's a community of committed relationships that we get to experience. And that takes us to the next characteristic, which is having a tender heart. Having a tender heart. Throughout the Gospels, the biographies in the Bible written about Jesus, we see Jesus described again and again as having a tender heart. The same word described here, uh, translated here as tender heart, is the same word for compassion. If there's one word that could describe Christ, wouldn't it be the word compassion? When we are in our sins, we had a need for salvation. And compassion is love's response to people in need. And this is what Christ has done for us. We had a need. And compassion was his response in love to our need. Jesus came. And out of his tender-hearted mercy, he gave his life for ours. And I do want to say at this point that if you're here and you've not yet put your faith in Jesus, I'm not sure what you think right now is your biggest need. You might have a long list of things that you think you need. But if there's an eternal holy God that we have wronged, the biggest need you have is to be right with him. And that's not something that you can do by yourself. This is what Jesus came to do for you. Jesus came to make us right with God by taking the punishment that we deserve for our wrongs, taking them on himself on the cross. He did this because we had a need and he had compassion for that need. And so if you have to put your faith in Jesus, I do not want to quickly go past this. I do want to give you the opportunity and have you think and consider right now in this moment. It's not by chance that you're here. 
God in his compassion has drawn you to this place, has drawn you to this time. If you're watching this online, he has you listening to this because he has compassion for you. And he does not want you to move on from this moment without knowing his love, believing in his forgiveness, and trusting what he has done on the cross, that he died for your sins. This is the good news of Jesus that you could leave here believing today, and I pray that you would. For those of us who have believed in Jesus, who have put our trust in him, friends, if there's one place that needy people should be able to come and receive compassion, it should be the church of Jesus Christ that follows the compassionate Savior. If there's one place where needy people should be able to come, it should be a place where we all know we're needy people. And we have been met richly by the one who has had compassion for us. It should be in the church as we come together as a community of people who know the tender heart of God and Jesus, that we have tender hearts for one another. Friends, this should be the place where there's who, those who are struggling get supported, where new people are richly welcomed, where absent people are pursued, where sick people are cared for, where sad people are comforted. We should be a community where we compassionately carry one another's burdens because we follow a Savior who compassionately carried our burdens up that hill called Calvary. I wonder if anyone here has ever had this thought. Someone else will take care of making that person a meal. Someone else will, I'm sure, go greet that new person. Someone else will pick up the phone and call that person who hasn't been. I haven't seen them at church for a while, but ask someone else will figure that out. Someone else will write a note of encouragement to that person who's going through that hard time. So someone else can be that person friends. My, my, my queue is filled up. I don't want to invite more people into that. I, I think as we've grown as a church, it's a lot easier for us to think someone else will. What tender heart says, I will. Tender heart says, I'll respond to that need. The ten heart says, I can be that someone. Jesus wants us to embody his compassion, his tender heart to one another. We're to have unity, sympathy, brotherly love, tender hearts, and then finally, we're to have humility. The kind of humility here that's being talked about is the kind of humility that Paul wrote about in his letter to the church in uh, Philippi when he wrote this in Philippians chapter 2. He says, let each of you Look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross." Friends, humility is being like Jesus and not just looking out for your own interests, but caring for others more than yourself. The great North Carolina basketball coach, Dean Smith, required that each of his players, immediately after they made a shot, they had to point to the person who passed them the ball. If they didn't, he'd pull them out of the game because he wanted them to know it's not all about you. It's not all about you. Friends, the church is a place where it's not meant to be all about us. How easy it is in our consumeristic society just to think about 
church in terms of what we get out of it. How easy it is for us not to have a humble attitude, but rather a self-centered attitude. But if we want to experience Jesus together, then we should be eagerly looking to come together, not for what we just get out of it, but for what we can give to it. We are all called to be not just consumers who watch other people do something. We're all called to be on the field, moving forward the ball for Jesus Christ together. We're called to humble service with one another as followers of the great king who humbled himself and served us. On September 11th, we're actually going to be having what we're calling Serving Sunday here at church. Just, just kind of roll out some opportunities for people to get get more connected and more involved. But I want you to know, you, you don't actually don't even have to wait for that. At any time, you can go on our website. Click on the hub, and there are servant opportunities there that you can start filling in right away. And when I see people like Nancy Festa coming in on Friday and just serving needs that we have in the office, when I see Sarah Miner and the list of what she does just goes on and on, running errands, doing all kinds of things throughout, throughout the week for, for the church, when I think about Rob Pino and how he's here early, almost every Sunday, setting things up, getting things ready for us to come together and worship, I'm like, man, I'm seeing Jesus. That's humble service. That's building up his body. And the point of each of these characteristics is not so like, wow, look at these great people. No, it's ultimately so that our faith in Jesus is built up as we see him working in one another. I'm going to close with this story. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, if you know that name, was a pastor in Germany during World War II. Time of tremendous persecution. He would actually end up dying in prison. And as he went through the horrors of facing off against Nazism, he didn't flee the country like he could have. He stayed in that hard place to shine forth the light of Christ. But he didn't stay by himself. He kept his church together. And during those tumultuous years, he wrote a book about the church called Life Together. And in that book, he writes the following. And as I read these words, I want you to hear these words, the backdrop of bombs going off and men and women being ripped from their homes and the evil of Holocaust on full blast. Here's what Pastor Bonhoeffer writes, Jesus Christ lived in the midst of his enemies. For this cause he had come, to bring peace to the enemies of God. So the Christian too belongs not in the seclusion of a cloistered life, but in the thick of foes. There is his commission, his work. According to First Peter, there is our calling to bless. But then watch, he says, in order to do such a work, I need the Christ in you, and you need the Christ in me. Friends, while we don't live in Nazi Germany, there is work that God wants us to do here. We have a calling to live a life of being a blessing, to doing good to others, even those who do us wrong. And in order to do that, we need Christ. Not just the Christ in our own hearts, we need the Christ that we see in one another. We have a calling that requires a community. And, you know, community, I think, really has been a strength of our church historically, but coming out of these past two years, I think our community muscles have gotten a little atrophied a bit. 
And so I think this is actually a timely word for each one of us as we are getting back to life post-COVID. As we think about rebuilding new and healthy rhythms. Let's be thinking intentionally and carefully how we can actively give ourselves to unity of mind, to sympathy, to brotherly love, to tender hearts, and to humble service. Because it takes a Christ-centered community to fulfill a Christ-centered calling. Let's bow our heads in prayer.